Well, here we are again, friends, in our study of 1 Corinthians. We are at chapter 10, beginning at verse 14. Last week, Paul was uh, talking to the Corinthians about how their, their Israelite fathers and mothers failed God, fell into uh, immorality, uh, particularly referencing the event of the worship of the golden calf there at the base of Mount Sinai, and how because those early Israelites, right after the Exodus, were led to idolatry, God brought judgment upon them. So last week was a warning to, to uh, uh, flee from idolatry, and that is exactly the way Paul starts the text this week. Chapter 10, verse 14, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Notice he says flee. He doesn't say think about it. He doesn't say argue with. He doesn't say be careful around. He says flee idolatry. He said the same thing regarding sexual immorality a little earlier uh, in 1 Corinthians. He said flee fornication or sexual immorality. Uh, He's saying the same thing about idolatry. There are some things that are just strictly off limits um, to, to the Christian life. And that's what he's saying to the church at Corinth. Flee from idolatry. Uh, then he begins with verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Uh, remember the Greco-Roman world was filled with people who were enamored with uh, Sophia. Or that's the Greek word for wisdom. They were enamored with wisdom. They saw themselves as being wise people. It was a world of philosophers. And they saw themselves as being wise people. So in a sense, Paul is um, complimenting them by saying, I speak as to sensible people. But in a sense, he may also be uh, a little sarcastic here when he's uh, referring to them as sensible people because as we've learned thus far up to this part of 1 Corinthians, they haven't always lived as wise people. At least they have not always lived with the wisdom of God. Uh, The problem was at times they lived with the wisdom of the world. So Paul says in verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And now he's going to talk about what we refer to uh, in the church today as uh, communion, Holy Communion, Lord's Supper, Eucharist. Uh, it goes by several different names. Uh, he's, he's going to make reference to their practice of this sacred meal here in Corinth. We know from the New Testament, uh, in three different places in the New Testament, that the early Christian community observed this sacred meal every Lord's Day. It was central to their worship life. Uh, Jesus, at the end of his earthly ministry, instituted the Lord's Supper, and he said to the people, do this, and they did it. Uh, he said, do this in remembrance of me, and they did it. Uh, they, they continued the simple meal of the bread and the cup to not just remember the work of Jesus, but to re-experience the work of Jesus, to help appropriate the work of Jesus, to help enter into the ministry and the work of Jesus. So this sacred meal 
uh, that is still central to the Christian faith today, um, was central at the beginning of the Christian faith in the New Testament. And we will learn in this chapter and, and the next chapter that there were some issues around the celebrating of the Lord's Supper there in the church at Corinth, and uh, Paul is addressing these issues. And he's going to begin addressing these issues here in chapter 10. Uh, here in Paul's letter to the Corinthians in chapters 10 and 11, we have the oldest references uh, that we have to the Lord's Supper because, of course, Paul's writing is older than the writing of the Gospels. So Paul is writing before you get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So here when Paul discusses the Lord's Supper in chapter 10, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, we are, we are encountering the oldest uh, account, the oldest material about what we Christians call the Lord's Supper. Um, in, in this context, and you'll see it in a moment, in this context, the problem is that the Corinthian Christians were having a hard time with giving total loyalty to Jesus Christ. Uh, you see, in the ancient world, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, they were a polytheistic world. They believed in many, many, many gods. And that's why they didn't have a major issue with embracing Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, as a god. Their issue was they had to embrace Jesus Christ as the expression of God, and they could not add him to their list of gods, their pantheon of gods. They could not make him one among many gods. They were very tolerant in the ancient world when it came to gods. Everybody could have multiple gods. And uh, you had your God, I had my God, and, and, and you didn't judge other people's gods. So the ancients didn't have a problem creating gods, but they had a major problem having only one God. That's why Judaism and, and then Christianity um, was a challenge to the Greco-Roman world. Uh, they wanted to embrace Jesus, but not necessarily sever their relationship with other gods. And that's part of what was going on in Corinth. Again, the issue of idolatry. Uh, you have to let go of the other gods. You have to let go of the other idols. Our God is a very jealous God. He's not going to share us with other idols, with other gods. Uh, so that's going to lead Paul here in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians into a discussion of the Lord's Supper. Because evidently what was going on here was they would uh, go and join in the Christian celebration on the Lord's Day on either uh, the evening uh, the evening after Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, Saturday night perhaps, or uh, the Lord's Day, which would be what we call Sunday. Uh, the Christians were worshiping. They were already worshiping on the Lord's Day in the New Testament, what we call Sunday. They would begin in the darkness of uh, what we would call Saturday night, which is the beginning of the new day in the Jewish way of reckoning. So a lot of the people in the Greco-Roman world, as they embraced Christianity, they would embrace uh, gathering with Christians, but then... You know, in the next couple of days, they may be found at a pagan temple, worshiping with the community as the community worshiped another god. And that was the issue. Um, by the way, it still is the issue. We, we won't have a multiplicity of gods. 
and God refuses that. So uh, here, using um, teaching around the Lord's Supper, Paul is going to address it. Uh, Notice verse 16 and following. Paul says in the first um, account, the first uh, references we have in Scripture to the Lord's Supper, Paul says, the cup of blessing, or you could translate that, the cup of thanksgiving, uh, Eucharistia is the Greek word for thanksgiving. One of the names for the Lord's Supper is the Eucharist. It is the giving of thanksgiving. Uh, that's one of the early names of, uh, of this meal. Uh, here Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, it is, not, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Uh, we could spend days right here, and there's been volumes and volumes and volumes written about uh, this simple verse. So, so look at this verse closely. Again, the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The word participation there is the Greek word koinonia. So that word can be participation. It can be fellowship. That is frequently how koinonia is translated. It can be communion. Uh, that's fellowship, communion. Um, that's one of the reasons we call this communion service. Is it not a participation, a fellowship, a communion in the blood of Christ? And then he goes on to say the bread which we break. Is it not a participation, a fellowship, a communion in the body of Christ? Um, so he's using that word participation, fellowship, communion for talking about this sacred meal. Let me point out something that's interesting in case you haven't noticed it. This is the only place where when the sacred meal is being referenced in the scripture that the cup is referenced first and then the bread. Uh, You're going to even see Paul later on is going to change the order to the bread and the cup. Um, And that is still how we reference the words of institution to the bread and then the cup. Uh, but Paul here is just talking about both. And he's saying that this participation in this meal is a fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now, in a few moments, he's going to go all the way back in, 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 in the Hebrew Scriptures and talk about how when you participated in a sacrifice or an offering or a meal, sacrificial offering, of a meal to God in the temple there in Jerusalem, you would be participating with God. You'd be fellowshipping with God. You'd be communing with God. That's what this meal is. That's what this meal became in Christianity. Um, This is a fellowship, a participation, a communion with God. When we share this meal, we're not just sharing it with those of us that happen to be in the room. We're sharing it with our God. It is a participation, a fellowship, a communion uh, in the blood of Christ, in the body of Christ. Um, That's the way the ancients saw these sacred meals. Uh, All the religions had sacred meals, such as what was happening in the temple with the sacrifice. The other gods, pagan gods, had their celebrations of sacred meals. Um, These sacred meals were always about uniting with the God uh, for whom the meal um, represented. 
the, the, for whom the meal was a, an account of, uh, for whom the meal was a fellowship, a participation, or a communion. So um, the early Christians knew that. Uh, sometimes I'm not sure that Christians today know what we're claiming for this sacred meal. It's not just something that we do uh, as a memory aid. It's not just something that we do uh, to, to help us remember something that happened 2,000 years ago. And of course, what happened 2,000 years ago with the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ is the central point of history. But this meal is not just an hearkening back to that. This meal is something that happens in the moment. This is a present, here and now, participation, communion, fellowship with our God. Um, so uh, the ancients understood that. Um, we need to make sure we understand that. That's why, that's why we call it Holy Communion. It is a holy fellowship right now in this moment with God. God is doing something. God in Christ is doing something to us and with us in this meal that is unique. It is a special means of grace. It is a special sharing in the life of Jesus Christ. Again, hear Paul. The cup of blessing or thanksgiving that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? A fellowship, sharing, um, communion in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, it is it not a participation, fellowship, sharing, communion, um, uh, in the blood, in the body of Christ. Uh, so this is the way Paul terms it. This is what we. Um, this is the bare minimum of what we think this meal is. It is a sharing in a special time, sharing in a special meal um, with with Jesus Christ. Uh, it is a, a, a an experience in the now that is an experience of Jesus Christ. It's not just a memorial meal, uh, a memorial is part of it. It does remind us of what happened 2,000 years ago, but it makes real for us in the here and now what happened 2,000 years ago. By the way, also in verse 16, the cup of blessing. Uh, that may very well be a technical term for the third cup that was used um, in the Seder meal, the third cup that would have been used in the Seder meal by Jesus there in the upper room. And it was that third cup, the cup of blessing or the cup of thanksgiving that uh, became the cup that he referenced as this is my blood shed for you. So this meal for us is tied to the Jewish Seder meal. Again, these meals are not just something to feed our stomach. These meals are not just a memory aid. These meals are something that we do in the presence with our God. Um, the early Christians knew that, and I, I, I think a lot of Christians in this age, uh, they're relearning that. Um, you know, if, you, if this is something you don't care about doing, if this is something you don't care about doing often, if this is something that you're satisfied with doing once or twice a year, I, I would contend you don't understand what this meal is. This is a sharing, a communion, a participation a, um, a sweet, sweet time of fellowship with our living God in Jesus Christ, the presence of the living Christ. Uh, I need that every opportunity I get. It's, it's like reading the scriptures or it's like praying. 
Um, I can't just do that three or four times a year um, because in these special means of grace that God has given us, these are special times when we encounter Jesus Christ. And we don't just need to encounter Him once or twice or three or four times a year. We need to encounter Him every opportunity we get. That's why the early Christian community celebrated this meal every Lord's Day. Uh, John Wesley, the founder, founding preacher of our movement, said, uh, receive communion daily, if at all possible. Just like you need to pray daily. You need to read Scripture daily. We need to use all of those means of grace where we can encounter the power and the presence of the living Christ each day. This is a participation. This is a sharing in. This is a fellowship um, with God, with Jesus Christ. That's the way the ancients saw this meal, which is also why the ancients could not have fathomed, the ancient Christians could not have fathomed that you did a meal with Jesus and then you shared a meal with another God. You shared a meal with another fellowship around another God. Uh, He's going to say some more about that. Verse 17, as he continues to talk about this meal, he says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This is a special fellowship, special participation, special sharing, uh, special communion with Jesus Christ, but it is also that with one another. It is a special time of fellowship, participation, sharing, communion with our sisters and brothers in Christ. And that's why uh, this is a way of uniting us in the presence of Jesus Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Symbols are important. Symbols can help create the reality. Whether it's a wedding band or whether it's one cup and one loaf of bread that's used during the communion meal. Uh, Symbols can create reality. Because there is one bread, Paul says, we who are many are one body. So again, we're we're being referenced as uh, the body of Christ. We are one body. We may be made up of all sorts of denominations and expressions and traditions and um, different peoples all around the globe, but we're one body because there's one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Uh, This is a unifying and a uniting meal for us. Again, this meal, this sacred meal is so important to the early Christians. Uh, Paul's going to continue. He's taking them back now to their, um, their heritage in Judaism when he says in verse 18, Consider the people of Israel, or, or technically he says, Consider those who are Israelites after the flesh. He says, Are not those who eat the sacrifice participants in the altar? So he's going all the way back to the Hebrew Bible to say that those who sacrificed at the altar, there in the temple, they were communing, they were participating, they were fellowshipping with God. They were participants in the altar. They were participants with the God of that altar. That, and that, that's why we have this same understanding for uh, this holy fellowship that we can sh- now share with God. Uh, it goes back uh, to what was happening there in the, 
in, in the temple. And all the ancients understood this because all of the, all of the ancients, in the Greco-Roman world at least, they had these sacred meals that united them with each other as it united them with their pagan god. So this is something that unites us with the true and living God. Uh, but evidently, some of the Corinthians were trying to share in several of these meals. Uh, you know, the more gods, the, the better. The more gods you have, the better your chances at making well in life. That was sort of the ancient uh, first century view. Verse 19, what do I imply then, Paul says, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? So he's going back now. He's going back to his discussion about eating meat offered to idols. And as he said frequently, you can eat meat offered to idols, and that is not your participation with the idol. Now, you don't go to the temple. You don't go and participate in the, in the worship there. You don't go and participate in their gatherings. But once they've done that and once the animals have been sacrificed, uh, the leftover meat is sold in the local butcher shop that may even be affixed to those temples. You can buy that meat. Uh, in the ancient world, only the wealthy could purchase meat anyway, but you could buy that meat. And if your conscience was clear, uh, you could eat that meat. And Paul's saying that's fine. Um, again, he's already made it very clear, though, uh, even though that's fine, you don't want to do that if that harms other sisters and brothers in Christ uh, for whom their conscience may be weaker. So um, he's saying that when food is offered to these other idols, and this is real important, so you need to hear this, when this food is offered to other idols, he's not, he says these idols are not anything. Um, he, he says, verse 20, he says, No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to gods. What he's saying here is there are no other gods in the world. But if, if Apollo is doing something for you, if Athena or Zeus is doing something for you, um, if that crystal is doing something for you, if astrology and the horoscope is doing something for you, you can keep creating that list. Those aren't other gods doing that, but those can be demons doing that. There are three texts in the Hebrew Bible uh, where the Hebrew Bible talks about if there's any power associated with these perceived other gods, it is a demonic power. So it's not just an innocent or a foolish or a stupid thing to, to participate in idolatry. Um, you know, if that Ouija board does something for you, uh, it could be a, a demonic power doing that. So Paul is wanting to say as strongly as he can here, uh, even though there are no other gods, those, you know, there's not really an Athena, there's not really a Zeus, that doesn't mean that it's not very, very dangerous for you to participate uh, in those realms, which is why he then says, uh, I'm in the, I'm in the um, second part of verse 20, he says, I do not want you to be participants or sharers or in communion uh, or in fellowship with demons. So um, he's saying to the Greco-Roman world, you know, just to go hang out at Apollo's temple, even if you believe there is no, there's only one God and there's no other gods and there's not a God named Apollo, that you may be opening yourself 
uh, in an occultic way. You maybe open yourself in a, in a spiritual way to, to, to demons. And you don't want to do that. Um, what Paul's doing here is saying as clearly as he can, our loyalty, our allegiance, our trafficking in gods has to be only with one true God. We can't dabble in these others. Um, that's idolatry. And he said, flee idolatry. Verse 21, let's wrap this part up. Look, look at verse 21 and verse 22. Uh, he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord. And notice here, this cup of the Lord is referring back to, to our sacred meal. Uh, he's also referring to Jesus Christ, by the way, as Lord. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord. Lord is a, wor is a word that's exclusively used for God in the Hebrew Bible. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Uh, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Um, is, you might call this a tale of two tables. We have to choose. Our loyalty has to be clear-cut. Um, we, you know, we, we don't have these pagan idols around us in this world, but we have the idols around us in this world. Anything that you trust in to do anything that only God and God alone can do for you is an idol. Anything that um, is organizing, orchestrating your life uh, potentially is an idol. Uh, I've quoted John Calvin many times on this point where John Calvin says, the human heart is an idol-making machine. Uh, we can take just about anything and let it run our lives, rule our lives, dominate our lives. And God will give you the freedom to allow someone other than himself to dominate your life. Uh, usually if something is dominating you, that's probably demonic and not God. God so loves us. God is so gracious. God doesn't dominate us. God wants to woo us. God wants to love us. God wants us to love God. God wants us to uh, receive the rule of God for our lives. But God doesn't dominate us uh, like um, other idols can dominate us. Uh, I think you understand what I'm saying. Uh, you know people in your life, and, and we all have things in our life that seek to dominate us. Um, God doesn't seek to dominate us. God, God wants to be in a right, mature um, relationship with us, a, a relationship of love. But these other, these other idols, which are, are, can, can be demons, are things that seek to dominate us. We know what drugs do to us. We know what alcohol can do to us. We know what the thirst for power, the thirst for popularity, the thirst for wealth, the thirst for sex, we know what that can do to us. Uh, and we know what it means to be dominated by those idols. Um, we've got to be clear that we have, we have got to seek moment by moment to make sure that our life is being ruled by one God and one God alone. That we are in fellowship, we are in communion 
we are participating, we are sharing life with Jesus Christ and no other gods. Uh, again, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And then he wraps up, this can be our last verse for this week, he wraps up in verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Uh, our God is a jealous God. Uh, he, he, he will let us chase after other gods, but He is a jealous God. Um, it never ends well for us when we, um, when we participate in idolatry. We've got to be a people of one table. We've got to people, be a people of one Lord. We've got to be a people who have only one God in our lives. And every other love, every other passion in our life has to bow to the one true and living God. Um, this is what Paul's saying to the church at Corinth, and this is what Paul's saying to us today. This is probably a good place to stop this week. Um, the section that we'll look at next week, which is the remaining part of chapter 10, is really where Paul summarizes um, all that he's really been trying to teach here since chapter 8, verse 1. So that would be a good place to pick up next week. Again, I'm so grateful that you share this time with me. Um, the time I spend around the Word of God is very life-giving for me, uh, and I trust and I pray that it is for you also. God bless you.